Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Over Thanksgiving, our family traveled to Colorado. That's where uh, Peggy, my wife, grew up, and uh, her brother still lives there. So we gathered together at their home, and because we're going to be spending Christmas with my family, we celebrated Christmas with them on, uh, on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And uh, it's fun to have all these little kids. Obviously, they love, uh, they love Christmas. But my nephew in particular is who I want to talk to you about. His name is Pierce, and he's six years old. And Pierce is just infectious. He has this joy about him. And so every time uh, we would go through turns, right, we'd go youngest through oldest who would open the present. Every time it came to his turn, I mean, he was just super pumped and excited to open this present. And I'll never forget one time he opened up a gift. He didn't know what it was going to be. Some of, the, some of them... I I think he kind of had a clue beforehand, but this was a total surprise one for him. And he pulled it out, and it was a remote control dinosaur. And I wish I could have gotten his reaction on tape, because it was just absolute stunned excitement and surprise and shock, like screaming at how excited he was about this dinosaur. And it got me thinking about this time of year, this time we call Christmas. And I just loved his response there. I loved his reaction to that gift. And it made me think about my reaction. My reaction to Christmas. You know, I've grown up in the church. I've preached and heard tons of sermons about Christmas. I love singing Christmas songs. But over time, eventually, as maybe with you, their meanings start to lose some of the significance for me. And I had this thought like, wow, it's just so easy to let this time of year become common for us. To kind of lose sight of how surprising it really is. But I wonder if we just step back for a moment and once again, with fresh eyes, looked at the story of Christmas, if our reaction wouldn't be a lot more like Pierce's. Did this really happen? Is this really what this story is all about? And so what we're going to do together for the next three weeks is we're going to do that very thing. We're going to step back, and we're going to take three weeks along with Christmas Eve, and we're going to look once again at the surprise of this incredible Christmas story. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke by doing this. You know, we've been going through that since last January. Uh, We're just going to go backwards a little bit. We're going to go all the way back to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at how the story of Jesus began. And so just as we do every week, I invite you to grab your Bible if you brought it with you or to grab one of the ones we have in the seat either underneath you or somewhere around where you're sitting and turn to Luke chapter 1. We are starting in verse 26 for this little mini series on Christmas. Let me pray. If you don't have, if you're using that black Bible, by the way, you can find this on page 714. But let me pray as we begin. Lord, help us to have the faith of a child. Let us be surprised and excited about this story, just as Pierce was. We pray that you would renew our hearts about this time of year. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Luke 1, 26. We are going to see, first of all, three surprises immediately about the Christmas story. And then we're going to talk about three responses we can have to it. So let's look at the first surprise. It's found on verse 26 there right away. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Elizabeth is John the Baptist's mother, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. If you're on your notes there, the first surprise of Christmas is that it takes place in Nazareth. It takes place in Nazareth. I can't emphasize enough to you how surprising of a choice Nazareth is for the Savior of the world to be born. This is like a podunk, nowheresville town. I remember when I was candidating here at Cherry Hills uh, 14 and a half years ago, the search team decided that they wanted to have me go preach at what's called a neutral site, and so they could come and watch me preach. And I got in Jerry Quick's car, some of you know Jerry, and we drove to Mawequa, Illinois. <laughs> to this day, I've had people try to explain it to me, I still have no idea where Mawequa, Illinois is. Like, I could not tell you on a map. And that's what I thought as we were driving there, like, Wow. We are truly going in the middle of nowhere. And that's like Nazareth. I mean, the people of Israel would have thought, Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Why didn't he come to Jerusalem? That's the center of our faith. That's where the temple is. That's where God had done great things. But no, instead he chose to come to Nazareth. And listen, it wasn't surprising just because it was a small, obscure town. People actually despised the town of Nazareth. And the reason for that is that the Jewish people there were intermingling. They were living with Gentiles. And so the pure Jewish people would go, oh, well, that's not a kosher town. This is why I love it. In John 146, you remember when Nathaniel hears that the Messiah, that Jesus came from Nazareth? Do you remember his response? He says this, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Like, that's the view of Nazareth, and yet the Christmas story surprises us in that God chose the Savior to come from a nowheresville despised town. Second surprise is found in verse 27. I'll back up. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. The second surprise of Christmas is that God chose above all people, Mary. God chose Mary. Now, why is the choice of Mary surprising? I don't even know where to begin with you. At the most, Mary was 14 years old. Wrap your head around that. We have a 13-year-old daughter now. I'm going, no way. She was poor, she was uneducated, and she was a female. All characteristics in that time that would make her unusable by God, or so it was believed. We also be learn that Mary is Jewish. She's engaged to a carpenter in Nazareth named Joseph, who was also poor. Let me tell you a little bit about engagement. Engagement was as binding as marriage for the people back then. The only way you could break an engagement was through death or through a divorce. During the period of engagement, this is important, sexual relationships between the couple were not permitted. In fact, the, the woman lived with their parents and the, the son lived with the parents and they would have a year of this engagement process to sort of prove their purity to the community. 
If the woman was found to be pregnant during that time, then the marriage could be annulled. So do you think what happens to Mary here, what she's about to hear from the angel, is going to have a significant impact on her life? Oh, you better believe it. Like Nazareth, I got to say to you, this doesn't seem like the kind of choice that makes a lot of sense. I would have thought that the savior of the world, the king of kings, would be born in a palace in Jerusalem. Maybe born to a prophet at least, or even a priestly family would make sense, but a poor, uneducated, teenage, unwed girl? God chose Mary for one of the most important acts of obedience he has ever demanded of anyone. Why? Well, don't miss this. The greatest news ever proclaimed in Israel came to the humblest of all its people. And that is how God works again and again and again. God loves to work in humble people. This is surprising to us because the world we live in today does not value humility. It values status and power. But God flips that upside down, right? Mary is exactly the kind of person God loves to use. She brings no outstanding credentials other than her willingness to serve. The lesson, of course, for us should be, well, you may feel that your ability or your experience or your status or your education makes you an unlikely candidate for God's service. And God would say to you, you're just the person I'm looking for. Don't let what the world says to you keep you from being willing to respond when I ask you to do something. We say it often here, God loves to use ordinary people who are humble to do extraordinary things. If he can take a peasant girl and make her the mother of God, do you think he could do something in your life and in my life? The third surprise of Christmas is, of course, the surprise of God's plan for our redemption. God's plan for our redemption. We find his plan in verses 31 through 33, which, again, let's not just let this become common. These are some of the most incredible verses in the entire Bible. I printed them on our notes there here. Let's look at these with fresh eyes. Let's read them out loud together. It says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I was looking at these verses this week, and I counted no less than seven surprises in just these verses. Let's talk about them quickly. First, Gabriel announces that Mary, remember, an unwed virgin, is going to conceive and have a child. Surprise! Second, she is to name this child Jesus, which is a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh or the Lord saves. So listen, listen what he's saying here. Just as Joshua led the people out of the promise, out of slavery into the promised land, so this Jesus is going to come and lead his people into freedom. He will save. That's a pretty big claim. Third, Gabriel says he will be great. Now, the reason that's surprising is because Gabriel is borrowing language from the Old Testament that is used only to describe God. 
We see an example of this in Deuteronomy here. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God. That's the language that Gabriel uses to describe Jesus. Mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no brides. So don't miss it. This title, the great God, is applied here to this Jesus. Fourth, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. Another name reserved for God alone, Most High. There's no doubt then that what Gabriel is saying here is that this child is going to be divine. That he is going to be God. That's pretty surprising. Fifth, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. This is pointing back to one of the two major covenant promises that God gave in the Old Testament. It's a promise he gave to King David. We see it in 2 Samuel 7, which says this, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's referring in that prophecy both to Solomon, but also to a future son who would reign forever on his throne. And of course, what the angel is saying is that time is now. The covenant I made with David, that you would have a king who would reign forever, it's going to be in this baby. And finally, the last two surprises are found in the words, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his reign there will be no end, which declare that this Jesus, this king, will not just be the king over Israel. He won't just be a political king, but he will be the king over all people for all time. Now, I don't know how we can't look at that and then be like my nephew. Are you kidding me? The stupendous claims the angel makes here for this unborn baby are staggering. The child will be the greatest ruler not only Israel has ever seen, but the world has ever seen. He will be God in the flesh. Come to save his people forever. It's hard to believe that these words can become so commonplace for us today, isn't it? It's the most surprising and extraordinary plan that one could ever dream up, and yet it's God's plan. It's God's plan for our redemption. And it's what Christmas is really all about. Now the obvious next question is, well, what do we do with this incredible news? How do we respond to God's surprising plan? Well, in my opinion, the place to look is right back in this text. And look at how Mary responded to this, right? I think Luke intended Mary to be a representative of how every person can respond to God's surprising plan of redemption of Christmas still today. So what do we learn from her response? I want to talk about three responses Mary has. The first thing we learn from Mary is that she responded in reasoned faith. Reasoned faith. Or you could put thoughtful faith. I put reason there because so many people have come to believe today that faith and reason are opposites. Like I need to, if I want to have faith, I have to suspend my reason. Or I can't have any doubts about that. But that is not the picture of faith we see in this story at all. We don't see Mary practicing what many people call blind faith here, right? 
I get this from verse 29, which I have in your notes there. I printed a more literal translation of this verse because I think it clearly helps us see her response. Let's read it out loud together there. It says, but Mary was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Some of your translations have the word Mary wondered about this. That's not strong enough. Even pondered is not quite catching it. The literal Greek word is she reasoned thoroughly about this. It was a word that was used also for an accounting term. She weighed it up. She added things up. She pondered. She was intensely rational. And I want to say to you, of course she was. It's how any of us would have responded in a situation like this, right? Any normal person at the appearance of an angel would say, is this right? Am I, am I seeing a hallucination right now? What in the world is going on here? Listen, she doesn't immediately accept the message. She says these incredible words later on. How can this be? How can this be? Part of the reason I want to point this out is because a lot of modern people tend to read ancient texts like this, right? 2,000 years old. And we kind of read it with an arrogant attitude as if the people back then had lesser IQs than we do today. This was actually part of what I wrote about in my dissertation. Some of you know I finished that, and the whole point was to talk about how important going back to Christian history is for our faith today. And what I was talking about a lot in that, in that paper was that oftentimes we think as 21st century people, we've like arrived. Especially if you're a teenager. I know everything, right? I know everything there is to know. What can somebody from 500, 1,000, or 2,000 years possibly teach me about life today? We think and assume that people back then were more gullible, maybe more superstitious and ready to believe any claim. But of course, you know this, right? People were not less intelligent 2,000 years ago. They weren't. And Mary is responding as much as you would have responded if an angel showed up at your doorstep and started talking to you. How can this be? How can this be? She doubted. She asked her questions. She reasoned, just as you must do if you want to have true faith. Now, maybe you're listening to me going, this doesn't sound like what I've heard in the church before. Aren't we supposed to not doubt? Didn't James say that if you doubt, you'll be like waves tossed in the ocean? That's a great question, but I think there's really two different kinds of doubt. In fact, I'm going to quote something Tim Keller says about this because I loved his words so much. I have it on the screen so you can follow. There is a kind of doubt that is a sign of a closed mind. And there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers. And some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. There are people like Mary who are open to the truth and are willing to relinquish sovereignty over their lives if they can be shown that the truth is other than what they thought. And there are those like Zechariah, he's referencing the story before this one, who uses doubt as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their minds closed. Which kind of doubt do you have? Mary was seeking to understand, right? Her faith happened in stages as her questions got answered. Is that not how many people come to know Jesus Christ? I know for some people it happens immediately, right? We see examples of that in Acts chapter 2, right? People hear the gospel and they surrender immediately to Christ. But many of you in this room, this is your story. Your faith happened as a process, as you reasoned it out. The first time Mary hears the gospel, she says, how can this be? 
since I am a virgin? Great question. Literally, how can this be since I have not known a man sexually? How will I have a child? She's not disbelieving. She's asking for more enlightenment. How are you going to do this? That's a great question. Here's what I want to say to you. If you have heard and understood what the Christian message is, the message we just heard in verses 31 through 33, and like Mary, you don't step back and find it absolutely incredible and inconceivable and say, how can this be? Perhaps you've really never heard the gospel. Perhaps you've never really heard it. As I said earlier, I grew up in the church, so Christianity is very, very familiar to me. It's always been a part of my life, and that may be true from you, but listen, I encourage you just to stand back for a moment and think about what we're actually claiming. That this baby who came from Nazareth, spit, was born to a teenage, peasant, unimportant girl is going to become the savior of the world and sit on his throne forever and ever. How can this be? It's so surprising, but it's become so familiar. I was watching an NBC special this week, you know, when they light the tree in the Rockefeller Center. Some of you guys see this uh, with our family. We were just watching some of it. They bring on these famous people to sing some of the Christmas carols. And I'm sitting there on the couch. I even said this to Peggy. It just dawned on me. These people have no idea what they're actually singing. <laughs> like these Christmas songs that are so familiar. They're played in stores and, and all this. It's like, just think about Hark the Herald. I just took one example. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That is insane. That is crazy. And yet we sing it and go, yep. It is the most surprising story in the world. Jesus Veiled in the flesh as God, our Emmanuel, God in flesh. Mary finds this hard to believe. I would too. But here is the key. She doesn't shut it out. She doesn't dismiss it. She doesn't stop the conversation. She asks for more information. She seeks to understand more. And here's what I'd say to you. Those are the signs of a seed of faith. Of course, faith doesn't stop there. After asking her questions and having them answered, she moves. I'm still here. I'm still in the first part here. She moves to simple acceptance. She moves to simple acceptance. We'll talk more about it in a bit. But what I want you to see in this process of faith, she says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Do you hear in that like, oh, it's so clear to me now. I totally get it. I'm so excited for this plan you have for me. No. She's like, it's not making a whole lot of sense to me right now. But I will pursue. I will follow. And I will trust. Friends, this is a very, very important step in the faith process. Some of you have been seeking to understand the gospel, and I will say to you, that's great. Ask your questions. Bring your doubts with an open heart. That's all part of the process. But listen, there will come a time. There comes a time for every person when you have to decide, am I going to accept this message or not? You may not ever have all of your questions answered. 
I think the greatest example I've ever seen of this is that Indiana Jones movie. I think it's the last one, right? We've talked about this before. We've shown it. I just think it's incredible, right? He's coming to try to save his father's life, and he gets to this big chasm. It's an empty chasm, but he's got this book. He's reasoned it out. There should be a bridge here, right? I should be able to cross this chasm. My father has given me all the information I know. He's reasoned it out, but there's nothing there. And what does he do? He decides that I need to take that first step of simple acceptance. He trusts that the bridge is going to be there. Do you remember this scene? And he steps out, and sure enough, the bridge is there. Did he have all his questions answered? Did he know if the bridge was going to keep going? No, but he took that first step. And then he took another one. And then he took another one until he finally got to the other side. That's how faith works in our lives, friends. We take that step of obedience. It's not till much later in this story when Elizabeth goes and visits, or excuse me, when Mary visits Elizabeth. And she sees all of these things confirmed that the angel talks about, that her faith moves into her whole body, into her soul, into her mind, into her emotions. It happens one step at a time. That's how faith works for many people. Faith is always initiated by God coming to us and opening up our hearts, always. And sometimes our response is immediate, but most of the time it's a process where we need to trust as I take that next step, he will meet me there, and then he will meet me there, and then he will meet me there. Are you willing to respond to the surprise of Christmas with reasoned faith this year? Maybe that means asking your questions instead of keeping your mind closed off to the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe it means finally taking that step of simple acceptance, trusting as I do that first step, he will reveal more and more of himself to me. Or maybe it's time you stop playing a religious game and give him your whole life. That he has everything, mind, body, soul, spirit. Second thing we can learn from Mary is that she responded in awe and wonder. I see this again in this response we've been talking about in verse 34. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Friends, it's not just that God's plan is surprising to her. It's that it involves her. She's a part of it. She's a part of God's incredible plan. God has spent centuries preparing for this day, and now he's going to save the world through a poor, simple, teenage, uneducated, unwed girl. So she has an amazement about this, as she should. Her response is, I can't believe this is happening to me. We see this further developed later in Luke 1. If you got your Bible there, you can see this in 146 when she bursts out into this amazing song. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. What does that have to do with us? Friends, every Christian 
If you are a Christian, you are like Mary. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ, we're told by the Holy Spirit that Christ now goes in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. We bear Christ in our lives now. He is in us. How can we not stand back in awe and wonder that despite my inadequacies and despite my fears and my failures that he has chosen, he has chosen me of all people. If you think Christianity is about going to church or about believing certain things or about doing certain things, then there will not be any awe or wonder in your life. Because in that case, what faith is, it's something you do. Faith is something I do for God. But if you understand that faith is actually something God has done for you and to you and in you, how can you not step back and go, he chose me? Of all people, he chose me. Who would have ever thought, who would have ever thought he would make his dwelling place in me? Do you still have the awe and wonder that God's surprising plan included you? That like Mary, he has chosen you to bring Christ into this world through your life. If you've lost the wonder of the gospel, what would it look like this year to recover, to recover that this Christmas? The third thing we can learn from Mary's response is that she responded in total surrender. Total surrender. I find this in verse 38, and again, I put a more literal translation there to just help us to catch how an amazing of a response this actually is. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes there? And Mary said, Behold, I am the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That word bondservant is such a rich word in the New Testament. It's actually referring back to the Old Testament, talking about a slave who has been set free by their master, only to say, I now want to, in turn, return to my master and serve him for life. This is how, if you've read Paul's letters, how he reviews himself, right? I am the Lord's bond servant. I have been set free by Jesus Christ for the gospel, but because I have been set free, I now give my life completely and wholly unto him for his service and for his purposes. This is how Mary views her life as well. We don't read here that she says, well, I guess God has all the cards in his hands and I have no other choice. She says, I am the Lord's bondservant. And I gladly give up my life to follow you out of love. This is no small decision. I mean, just think about everything she's being asked to do here because I'm sure Mary did. Remember some of the stuff we've talked about here? You don't think in this tiny podunk village the people are going to put it together like, wait a minute, they got married on this date, and they had a child on this date. What's going on here? Mary knew what she was getting into. She knew that she would always be seen in this village as the lady who had a child out of wedlock. She would always be gossiped about behind people's backs. She would be talked about. She would probably live a life of disgrace or even worse, but she says, whatever comes, I accept it. I am the Lord's bondservant. Now here's what I want to say to you as we get ready to close. Anybody who wants to be a Christian must basically do the same thing Mary does here. 
Becoming a Christian is not like signing up for a gym, right? It's not a negotiation. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost before you follow me because it's a total surrender thing. It's a total surrender thing. Have you ever said, and can you now say, I am the Lord's sponsor? May it be to me as you have said. Now, I quoted him earlier, but it's because I'm reading a book he wrote about Christmas. I like what Tim Keller says. He says he was once at a conference, and a speaker asked the audience two questions. I think these are important. First, are you willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do, whether you like it or not? Second, are you willing to trust God and anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? And the speaker went on, and this is why this stood out to Keller. The speaker went on and said, if you can't answer those two questions in the affirmative, you may believe in Jesus in some general way, but you have never said to him, I am the Lord's bondservant. May it be to me as you have said. Keller goes on to say, those questions were startling to me. But to this day, I believe they are accurate indicators of what Christians are being asked for. This is why we say here at Cherry Hills, right, we are fighting shallow Christianity because I know it's in me. It's always there. It's always there for me to want the Savior Jesus. To make him my assistant. Instead of what he's actually asking, which is to let him be my Lord. And to say, I am your bond servant. No matter what it costs me. No matter what it means. I will trust you and I will obey you because you are worth it. You're worth it. What about you, friends? Are you the Lord's bondservant? As we close and prepare to take communion together, I'm just going to remind you again that Mary is an example of how we can respond to the surprise of Christmas this year. And so as we take time for reflection while communion is being passed, let me just ask you, how do you need to respond to Jesus this Christmas? Maybe it's in one of the three ways we already talked about. Maybe you need to ask your questions to reason out your faith. Maybe you need to take that first step of simple acceptance. Go, I've learned enough. It's time for me to trust that the bridge is actually there. Maybe you recognize I've lost the awe and wonder of what this story is all about. I need to reclaim that Christ in me. Are you kidding? The hope of glory. Or maybe it's time once and for all that we stop playing the game. Stop letting Jesus just be my assistant. And let him be the Lord of my life and willingly say, I am the Lord's bondservant. I don't know what it is for you, but if you're falling on your notes, here's the question. How do I need to respond to the surprise of Christmas this year? I mentioned we're going to take communion, and we're going to do that. I encourage you to reflect on that question, but let me just set it up here. If you're visiting with us this morning, there's just a few things to know about communion. First of all, if you have declared to the Lord, I am your bondservant, and you're not from this church, this is an open communion, you are welcome to take it with us. This is his amazing gift to us. So we welcome you to do that. And the way that's going to happen is we're going to have some ushers come forward. They're going to have some trays that we're going to pass in between the rows. And in those trays, there's going to be two cups that are stacked. One of the cups has some bread and the other one has some juice. And here's what I'd say to you. Can you just grab one of those and hang on to it so that we can take this meal together as a church family?
If you honestly have not yet come to the conclusion that I can be the Lord's bondservant, if you're still asking your questions, if you're still searching, that's great. We want to be a place where you can do that. But we would simply ask that you let these elements pass as they come your way. Use this as a time to pray, to consider how remarkable this message really is. So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to take communion. How can this be? We stand in awe and wonder of the surprise of Christmas, Lord. The beginning of a plan that would then cost you your life. The beginning of a plan that would then give us life. I pray for the presence of your spirit in this place now as we consider how you might want us to respond this year. How can we respond as Mary did to this amazing news? Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.